while some may consider it to be controversial, I just want to make my stance on women fantasizing about werewolf gangbangs known. And that is that I am positive. I, I'm pro-women werewolf gangbang fantasizing and hypocrisy. And let me, let me, even though, even if they're like, oh, men shouldn't have that kind of fantasy, men shouldn't think about that kind of thing, should a woman then think about a bunch of furry dicks, like eight-foot-tall walls of meat just taking them? How, is, is, that, is it hypocritic of, hypocritical of her? And my answer is, it is not. Let me explain. Let me explain. Let me explain why all things don't have to be equal. Let me explain why, you, why I think, as a dude, you don't ever have to explain uh, why ladies' night uh, uh, at a bar you don't own and that you're not operating is not something that you ever have to defend to somebody who goes, Why ladies' night? And it's the exact same answer for, Why do I give women women's stuff that gets really sexually charged a little bit more lenience than I would a dude's thing? Well, what kind of thing am I talking about? For instance, I'm talking about like the Twilight series or the Fifty Shades uh, series. And there's a lot wrong with these fucking series. And I have goofed on them before, and I will definitely goof on them again. But in short, there is so little that speaks to the female psyche. It was actually right before we started hitting, uh, we recorded the show, uh, we were talking about Sex in the City. I was talking about Sex in the City because I had watched Sex in the City. And... Uh, Recently, I was actually explaining to a guy why that show was so popular because he could not understand it because he didn't see it when it was out. He watched it recently. He goes, that show is horrible. <laughs> I went, yeah, going back on that show, that is, it definitely has not aged that well. That's true. Uh, but also, in the 90s and the early 2000s, a show starring all female characters in which men came in and out, rotated in and out of the cast. Right? Where a woman would fall in love with a guy, but then he'd also disappear and never come back. That's very unique for that time span on television. It's, it's women-centric with a woman narrator and women issues. And that kind of alone was going to make it a little bit dynamite, I think, at the time. Because even something like Ally McBeal got super popular, and I liked Ally McBeal just fine. But even that was not really female-centric. Like, Allie had a lot of thoughts and feelings, but she was still very much just responding to Peter McNichols and Greg Shepard, whatever the fuck they wanted that week. It was still like a very network show. And there is something about representation in media. There is something about... <laughs> this, is, this sounds so enlightened. Buckle up. This... <laughs> There is something about representation in media that is absolutely necessary, and that's included in sexuality. Right? So, you thought it was a curveball that I threw you with the furry sex at the beginning, and then I, and then I was actually going to talk about something high-minded? Nope! 
We're going right back into the crazy shit. And here's what convinced me of that, that I should give lenience, that it's okay that uh, whatever Edwin or the fuck his name in Twilight is, is 125 and she's 16 or whatever the fuck. Don't at me. Don't give me the correct numbers. I don't give a shit. Please don't give it to me. Why am I going to defend that? Why am I going to defend falling in love with the werewolf baby? Why am I going to... Or the werewolf falling in love with the baby or whatever. Or, or, again, please don't at me. I don't... You know that I'm getting... If I'm close enough for you to correct me, don't fucking correct me. Oh my god. Why do I defend it? Why do I defend Fifty Shades? Even though the villain of Fifty Shades is apparently communication... The great antagonist of the Fifty Shades three movies, as far as I can tell, is two people talking. Uh, why do I defend it, even with these huge, obvious flaws reeking out? I'll tell you why. So this really, really normal gal once let her guard down with me, and then she told me about her sexuality, and I didn't take it great because it shocked me so much. Now, before you freak out, her sexuality was not an orientation. She didn't tell me like, oh, I like women. I was like, oh. <laughs> No, she was telling me about her proclivities and she was telling me about some of her, some of her sexual desires. And this is quite some time ago. I failed this test. I've made sure to try and ace it ever since. She just revealed out of normal this very, 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 very buttoned up, very, very, quote, normal, very, very, quote, down-to-earth girl, explained to me that she could only jerk off to one thing in the entire world. Everything she'd ever seen, everything she ever tried, there was only one thing that sexually excited her when she was masturbating. With a partner, she could have sex and she could orgasm, but alone, there's only one thing. She had to watch Japanese sexual assault hentai. That's it. That's the only thing. Now, I didn't handle this test well, but I did handle it well enough to go, why, before I, I got into anything else. And her answer was pretty fantastic. Her answer was, and I believe this answer, I've told this story to women, they go, do you believe this answer? The answer is yes, I believe this answer. She said, the voice acting of the women, they really have to voice act like it's happening. And then there's something about the way that they have to do it because they initially hate it, but then they learn to really like it. And they have to act that out for minutes at a time. And there's something about that where if I'm fingering myself or if I'm using a toy on myself and I'm listening to that, I can kind of get that intensity going and I can come. Well, holy crap, listen to that answer and suddenly it doesn't sound nearly as weird. And there was a lot of humility to her when she was saying it. She was not so happy that it was being uncovered, but in a way kind of relieved that she was saying it. So we go over this for a little while, 
And eventually, my sensitivity wears down. You know the kind of asshole I am, if if you've listened to the show this much. And we get to the point where I'm asking different, like, hot or not questions about, like, fucking anime and hentai is doing it for. And I get down to something that I've seen in, an, in a hentai. I don't have a lot of reference for hentai. I'm not a hentai guy by chance. But I did see a fuckbush in one. And if you haven't seen hentai, it's Japanese sex cartoons for adults. And they have often... Things that have, like, multiple penises or, like, aliens will, like, pull off or demons will, like, pull off multiple penises or tentacles. All kinds of weird stuff like that. And in one of the hentes I saw once, and I did have to skip the scene because it was too weird, there was a bush, like, in the middle of, like, a botanical garden, and it did grab multiple women and take their clothes off, and it did have multiple, like, penises, tentacles, and it did, like, try... And have sex with him. I mean, it did have sex with him. But it also got stopped. And so, the fuck bush is just going to town on these women. And these women are like, Oh, I don't want to have sex with the fuck bush! I don't want to have sex with it! Ah! Ah! And then they start to like it a little bit, right? It goes, it goes on and on and on. They don't call it a fuck bush. I don't know what else to call it. So this is my frame of reference for what she for what she needs. This is in my mind I'm like, okay, got it. Got it. This is what she wants. And so I ask her, <laughs> "Hey, like straight up, is that in any way a part of it? Do you do you want to be fucked by, by like a bunch of, like, essentially infinitely long dicks in all your holes. Like, do you do you want to be picked off off the ground by dicks? And like, is that part of it too, or is it just the screaming? And she looks at me, dead seriousness, and she says. Well, that doesn't add anything for me. And that's the moment that I realized (laughs) that I needed to stop trying to guard women's sexuality in any way. Because if a woman was going to just go to bat for a hypothetical another, I could tell. I'm telling you now. She didn't have another woman in mind when she said that. She just, she just said, hey, you know what, we're here, so I'm just going to try and say, no, but someone else probably does, and that's probably okay, too. And that's when I realized, oh my god, there's like so little out there for women. You can't really judge it by the same standards as you do everything for men. Now, there is one exception that I think that you should. It's aimed at women. It's very sexual. I'm going to get the fucking title wrong. I should have come into it prepared more than this. I'm sorry for this. It just came out. Where two women want to have sex with each other's sons. The whole movie. In Australia. Does anyone know what I'm talking about by chance? Has anyone seen this movie? (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my god. It's Nicole Kidman and it's Nicole Kidman and <laughs> uh, it's Nicole Kidman, yes. And another fair I like I wanna say Naomi Watts, but Naomi Watts just looks like Nicole Kidman, so I think I'm putting Naomi Watts and Nicole Kidman in the same movie because I think they look like the same person to me a lot. Uh but it's Nicole Kidman <laughs> and another one. And they're just it literally starts off with them like getting a beach house in Australia together. And, like, their little boys are playing together, and they're, like, five or six or whatever. And then it immediately cuts. Immediately cuts. We're not talking, like, we're not talking, like, <laughs> it spends a long time with them introduced as children. It immediately cuts from them being, like, six years old to, like, 26-year-old hunks who are surfing in their Australian with their eight packs. <laughs> so here's the thing. That I hate about this fucking movie, okay? Here's the fucking thing that I can't stand. I don't even have a problem with them fucking each other's sons. Like, at all. Like, even remotely. I know, but I don't... I Listen, I read A Hundred Years of Solitude without batting it up. I fucking Gilgamesh, okay? I've read a lot of fucking books. From a lot of fucking eras. From a lot of fucking authors. And you're not going to get me with no son fucking, all right? Incest? Come on, man. That's in like one out of four Shakespeare's. I'm sorry that Game of Thrones was like the raziest th thing you ever seen, but uh-uh. I don't even have a problem with them trying to fuck each other's sons. I don't have a problem with them fucking each other's sons. Here's the, here's my main issue. Fairly early in the movie, they find out they fuck each other's sons. <laughs> This is not like a, this is not the taboo thing. This is not like the J-Lo where she fucks the 19-year-old student who they're acting like he's not 19 in the whole. Again, I am open to watching movies about women and their sexuality, guys. Are you, did you take the journey? Did you watch J-Lo try and fuck her student? So I don't have any problem with them having the sex with it or any of that point. But after they discover fairly early in the movie that they've had sex with each other's son, they both basically for the rest of the movie go, how could you? How could you? And the answer is the same way you did, bitch. Like, I'm sorry, I don't really particularly like using that word, but the fact that it never came up in that fucking movie blows my goddamn mind. How could I? Well, as we just discussed, <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> well, if you'd like to go over your own experience, perhaps we could unpack that. But they don't. They just have the sex, and then the rest of the movie, they're just all like, <gasps> Now, I'm going to spoil the final shot of this movie. Because if that's not infuriating enough, after all the fighting and the possible divorce and all the things and all the melodrama, after the opening of the movie is them getting the, the beach house together with the boys, the final shot of the movie is the two of them, the two women who have fucked each other's sons <laughs> repeatedly. 
are lying on a giant raft on the ocean together, next to each other, silently. And the camera pulls out. <laughs> and the sons that they're fucking are next to <laughs> them. will never be the same but it just looks like a couple's photo and it legitimately is the perfect punch in the goddamn genitals to end that fucking movie on so it's not that i'm not gonna clown about movies that do women's sexuality it's just like horror movies for for a long time there there were no horror movies there were none like, studios would be like, we're going to green light this horror movie, and then they would cast Sebastian Stan, and they'd be all like, oh, we're, we're just going to make him shirtless. We're, the movie's now about him being shirtless in the forest. Like, so there weren't horror movies anymore. And so, therefore, we all pretended that a puppet on a bicycle was scary. Okay? Because there were no horror movies except the puppet on the bicycle. We're like, oh, no! Oh, not the puppet on the bike! Okay, so I've got three questions already about the Sebastian Stan, who's... what? I'm sorry, what movies were Sebastian Stan? Uh, I can't remember the name of the movie because it sucks, uh, but there's a movie where Sebastian Stan is one of five male witches, and I guess one of the main re ways that you gain power... Covenant, thank you. The Covenant. One of the main ways that you gain power as a male witch is to not wear clothing and to always be in the shower room. They don't explicitly say that's how you get your magical powers, but just from watching that movie, it's guaranteed to be a part of it. <laughs> so, I'm just saying, in the 2000s, there weren't any good scary movies. So we just pretended that the puppet on the bike was scary. Do you hear what I'm saying about movies that celebrate women's sexuality? Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm saying when they come out, we do it away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> that was so good. Because we are talking about Juneteenth, not really. I'm going to go over it very quickly because I know we've been so heavy and the news is so heavy and everyone's escaping. But this was done. I'm just going to say, this was done by the black media community about the Harriet Tubman movie that recently came out. They damned with faint praise. <laughs> it wasn't a good movie and they knew it wasn't. So they just said... Yeah, but they never—they didn't actually come out and rang on it because there's not a lot of fucking black biopics coming out lately. So you go with it. You support it. This is what the English do. The English, their movies are not great. The movie, they had one really good fucking director and then Hollywood took them immediately and started making them do Batmans. They had like one really good director and immediately Hollywood just, so, like, every fucking movie that comes out of England from an English director, they're like, Four stars! Four stars, says The Guardian! And The Times! All of them! All of us say the movie's four stars! It is not. 
Did you watch that fucking Tom Hardy movie where Tom Hardy plays two parts? Where you conjured that movie into being with your masturbatory fantasy? It sounds like masturbatory kindling from every woman ever. Tom Hardy plays two gangsters? With two different levels of sensibility about being a gangster? No. All the fucking English papers gave that movie four stars. It is not a four-star movie. Nobody likes it. Nobody watches it. Nobody says, let's put on the Tom Hardy gangster double movie. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You put on Magic Mike again when you're in that mood. Okay, let's start the fucking show. Uh, come on, I did a whole thing about, that was so funny. Somebody out there I know is laughing so hard that I did a whole thing about movies and women's sexuality, movie about women's sexuality, all these references, movies about women's sexuality, movies about women's sexuality, and then boom, right at the end, the magic mic. Sha -sha -sha -sha. Uppercut. <laughs> Think I don't know about magic mics? I know about magic mics. I'll be real real with you as I, as I pull up the poetry. I don't even think women are all that attracted by Magic Mike. Dead serious. I think the pandering was more attractive than the actual Magic Miking. I'm dead serious. I think the fact that they actually just made the movie that's like, here you go, women, had women more excited than anything that actually happened within the context of that actual movie. I was never, ever remotely threatened by that, and I was in such bad sh I was in the worst shape of my life when Magic Mike came out. I had a huge fucking gut. I had a, you know, I, I, this is the first time I was not trilling my, uh, 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 welcome to the sexy show, ladies. This is the first time I'm not trimming, like, my, my trail of happiness from, you know, my navel. So I've got a fat navel with fur on it, on the underside, right? I'm totally self-conscious about it, right? I'm totally not feeling sexy. Magic Mike comes out. And the entire, like, internet that I'm on, like, the red pill and all that is, like, freaking out. Like, losing their lunch, finding it, and then throwing it away all over again. Just everything that they can do just to not have a moment's peace or sanity that the fact that Magic Mike is coming, is coming, this is before it premiered, and they were just all so fucking enraged, and like every fucking comment section on every site I visited was just about how like, women are gonna see this, and they're gonna want men who look like this, and like, they're gonna want, uh, uh, I guess I'm not ready to start the show because I actually want to go back into one like long-term memory after talking about this, springing some magic mic on you. And like I knew that was bullshit coming on you, but not since I was looking at a woman's breasts when I was a young man. I'm a young man in this story. I'm not. I'm not a man. I'm a young man. I'm below the age of 18 in this story, and I'm looking at a young woman's breasts. And a man-man catches me, and he says to me, Great warlocks, huh? 
And I don't know the vocabulary or sexual dynamics or maturity or anything that I do now, but I do know this is wrong. <laughs> this is not okay. I don't know why it's not okay, and I also know that the word warlock is not okay. And I give him a look that says both. Both, you're not supposed to come up and comment, and that's not the word. <laughs> that's not the correct fucking phrase for these magical objects. Thank you. Warlocks is not acceptable. And he gave me a look back that said, You don't know the man code. It's the first of many looks I would get like this. I didn't know what that look was. You failed the test. I test you as a man and you failed. Because when a man comes up to you and he goes, I'd fuck that. As another man, you go, yeah! And if not, you failed. You're, you're just, you fucking suck. Ugh. You're not right for this fucking culture. True. Well, yes. This is how we train each other, dudes. Yeah, this is what we're trying to break. This is what the millennial man has been fucking talking about the whole time, trying to break it. And, ah. This is the training we got and the training we're trying to break. So... I guarantee you, I'm not walking up, seeing no fucking 15-year-old girls that developed early, looking at a 50-year-old boy who's staring at her across the street going, Hey! Yeah, let's bond, boy! Come on! Rocket punch over! So whatever flaws I'm making... <laughs> here's the thing, I don't think a lot of the dudes, even the worst fucking dudes about women and issues and... Like, even the guys who say things that I don't like, like, you don't think women are developing earlier for a reason? I don't fucking think any of the fucking reason you could get could possibly make that sound any fucking better! <laughs> even those guys, I don't think are walking up to dudes being all like, high five, I like boobs too. Gotcha. Gotcha looking up from the phone from the only thing I look up from my phone for. Give it to me. Because that happened to me multiple times. From, from authority figures, from math teachers. <laughs> okay? It's different. Life changed. I know it doesn't feel like anything ever changes, and yet somehow it also does. It also moves forward. <laughs> it's both at the same time. Isn't it crazy? Huh. So... Given that I had those experiences, and I knew that I was different going into it, I'm at Magic Mike in a bad place. My back is killing me. That's why I've gained so much. It's one of the reasons I'm horribly depressed. Yada, yada. I've lost income. There's multiple reasons why I've gained But the main reason is I can't move, and some days I can't breathe without being in physical pain. That makes it hard to lose weight. And this is where Magic Mike premieres. So this is a real good part for me to go down the warlock path. Let's just call it that. This is a real great time for me to go like, you know what? I gave a women, I gave women enough of a shot. I did. I, I went to enough Lil affairs. You know? 
Listen, now it's the time to be jaded. You really just, you do just want to, whatever his, I didn't know his name. You you do just want to channel talcum. Don't you, ladies? You just, you do just want to, you just want to Chanel Tater. Don't you? That's all women want. <laughs> this would be the perfect time to go on that on-ramp. And I've got to tell you, it wouldn't even remotely be interesting to me. Because, like, all the ideas that these guys were saying were still on their face hilarious. Oh, you think Magic Mike is what's going to make women want a male stripper? To be clear, you, th- you think the thing that's stopping women from wanting to see... Perfectly, like, <laughs> physiqued and choreographed men dancing is anything other than income and availability and logistics of a sitter? <laughs> like, I know. Now, hold on. I know that not all of you want to go out to see Chippendales before you get mad at me. But before you, before you don't get mad at me, I also feel like There was this point in your sexual history, before you learned what you like and you didn't, where someone said to you, you know, men strip for women too. And you went, ha! Ha! (laughs) And you kind of let something play through your head, and it went over real well. I feel like a lot of people took, a lot of women took that journey. A lot of women went, Now, I'm not saying that's where you ended up, but I'm just saying it wasn't, it wasn't really a concept that was advertised to you, right? Or did you always know? Because I have to say, I have, I have heard it both ways. <laughs> Speaking of psych earlier, I have heard it both ways. But here's the thing I did know. From the age of, I don't know, at least 18, 19, my female friends would say aloud, about men, things like, yes, I saw him today. And as soon as I did, all I could think is, I want him in my mouth. And they're not talking about his penis in this case, I don't think. I'm almost positive, because I, I was just listening. I was, I was the third wheel, baby. I'm just listening to this conversation happen. Talking about this guy, he's really hot. Just as soon as I see him, I want him in my mouth. Ah. If you accept that information as it comes in, you could never, ever go back to, oh, Hollywood's making these women want hunks. <laughs> the closest you could ever get to is, Hollywood's defining what a hunk looks like, which I do resent, because after 10 years of the fucking MCU steroid body... I do resent that. I'm trying to be a hunk myself, thank you. I don't want to look like that, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry if that's mean or if you think I'm being mean, but they are taking fucking anabolics, and I'm not, like, ask your local endocrinologist. I'm not gonna, I don't judge them. If someone was going to give me that paycheck to take them, I would take them too, but my god. And, I'm just trying to say, 
from the bottom of my heart on this giant segue on the way out there, uh, since I did say I was going to begin the poetry some time ago. <laughs> Representations of sexuality in media and, and all the rest. I do defend them. I do defend, I do try and let women have that space, have that playground in collective consciousness and not let that be defined or let men rag on it. And humbly, I think, me, like, you obviously got to pick your fights. You have your energy level and all that, too. Don't let any fucking man def define it. Men are constantly trying to define your sexuality and trying to define what's okay for you to enjoy or not. You know this, right? I don't need to tell you this. But what I also think is, from the outside, as a dude, what it looks like, is when men attack something like Fifty Shades or Twilight, like, how could you defend a Twilight mom? Is you go, I fucking don't. She's, she's horny. She's after it. What do you want from me? How do you defend a fucking Calvin Klein billboard? The fuck you want? What kind of question are you asking me? Is this, is this where we're in? Is this, is this where we're putting sexual media context on display? This, this is where we're judging it? Fuck you. We get one movie every five years as women in which, in which, Sexuality is not described as an attractive man throws us down on a motel bed because he's dangerous and sweaty. <laughs> Let us have it. <laughs> hey, I'm on the run from commitment and the law. Wait, it's the other way around. Damn it, from the law and commitment, but not from you. <sighs> That's what women want, right? All I know is that women wouldn't stop talking about Brad Pitt and Thelma and Louise. So clearly, women must love characters like Brad Pitt and Thelma and Louise. It's the only deduction we can possibly come up with. <sighs> Let's make another hundred like them. <laughs> Okay, let's actually get into it. That's a fucking that's a great thing to land it on. Ah, uh, so close but so far, hypothetical Hollywood executive. <laughs> uh. Okay. <clears throat> While all the east was weaving red with gray, the flowers at the windows turned toward dawn. Petal on petal, waiting for the day, fresh flowers, withered flowers, flowers of dawn. The morning's flowers and flowers of yesterday, their fragrance drifts across the room at dawn. Fragrance of bloom and fragrance of decay. Fresh flowers, withered flowers, flowers of dawn. Before Morning, T.S. Eliot. Pretty interesting poem from him. <clears throat> These hips are big hips. They need space to move around in. They don't fit into little pretty places. These hips are free hips. They don't like to be held back. 
They go where they want to go. They do what they want to do. These hips are mighty hips. These hips are magic hips. I have known them put a spell on a man and spin him like a top. Homage to my hips by Lucille Clifton. <clears throat> when I think of love, I think of Pluto and Chiron, the dwarf planet and its moon. She does not allow her life to revolve around his. Instead, she takes his hand and they orbit each other, moving through the night sky. Both on their own paths, both pulled together as they tumble through the nothingness. When I think of love, I think of gravity working both ways. I will not call myself the earth and you, the sun. I will not orbit around you, helplessly falling and spinning around you as the center of my universe. That is not love. Love is when I am pulled towards you, and when you are pulled towards me, this is stepping into your gravitational field. Not to orbit around you with you. Untitled, Caroline Kaufman. <clears throat> if ever, <clears throat> excuse me, if ever there was, <sighs> attempt three, this one's going to be it. If there was ever one whom when you were sleeping, who you would wipe your tears when in dreams you were weeping, who you would offer your time when others demand, whose love lay more infinite than grains of sand, if there was ever one to whom you could cry, who you would gather each tear and blow it dry, who would offer help, who would stop and let each sunset and soothe the jaded mine. If ever there was one to whom you would run who will push back the clouds so you are bathed in the sun, who would open arms if you would fall, who would show you everything if you lost it all. If there was ever one whom you would achieve was there before the dream and even then believed, who would clear the air when it was full of loss, who would count love before the cost. If there was ever one who, when you are cold, will summon warm air from your heart to hold, who would make peace in pouring pain, make laughter fall in falling rain. If ever there was one who can offer you this and more, who in keyless rooms can open door, who can open doors and can open fields, and in open fields they see my face in a reflection of these tides. Through the clear water beyond the riverside, all I can send is love in all that this is. A poem and a necklace of invisible kisses. Invisible Kisses, Lemon 
Lim Sise. L E M N S I S S A Y. This is the word we use to plug holes with. It's the right size for those warm blanks in speech, for those red-hearted shape vacancies on the page that look nothing like real hearts. And lace that you can sell it. We insert it into one empty space on the printed form that comes with no instructions. There are whole magazines with not much in them, but with the word love, and you can rub it all over your body, and you can cook with it too. How do we know it isn't what goes on at the cool debaucheries of slugs under damp pieces of cardboard? As for the weed seedlings noising there through the snouts up across the lettuces, they shout it. Love, love, sing the soldiers, raising their glittering knives in salute. Then there's two of us. This word is far too short for us. It has four letters, too sparse to fill those deep bare vacuums between the stairs that press, press on us with their deafness. It is not love we don't wish to fall into, but that fear. This word is not enough, but it will have to do. It's a single vowel in this metallic silence, a mouth that says, oh, again and again in wonder pain, a breath, a finger, a grip on a cliffside. You can hold on or let go. Variations on the word love. Margaret Atwood. All right, we've got quite a few love letters today, so thank you to everybody who took that seriously last time. Uh, I think we should do quick quotes after the love letters, so you should have some time to think them up if you're here. Okay. Interesting. Okay, I want to make sure this was a love letter. Dear readers, nearly every book has the same architecture, cover, spine, pages, but you only open them onto words and gifts far beyond what paper and ink are. And on the inside, they are every shape and power. Some books are toolkits for you to fix things, for the most practical and the most mysterious, from your house to your heart, to make things from cakes to ships. Some books are wings. Some are horses that run away with you. Some are parties to which you are invited, full of friends who are there even when you have no friends. In some books you meet one remarkable person, in others a whole group, even a culture. Some books are medicine, bitter but clarifying. Some books are puzzles, mazes, tangles, jungles. Some long books are journeys, and at the end you are not the same person you were at the beginning. Some are handheld lights that you can shine on almost anything. 
The books of my childhood were bricks, not for throwing, but for building. I piled the books around me for protection and withdrew inside the little battlement, building a tower in which I escaped my unhappy circumstances. There I lived for many years in love with books, taking refuge in books, learning from books a strange, data-rich, out-of-date version of what it meant to be human. Books gave me refuge, or I built a refuge out of them, out of these Books that were both bricks and magic spells. Protective spells I spun around myself. They can be doorways and ships and fortresses for anyone who loves them. And I grew to write books, as I'd hoped. So I knew each of them as a gift as a writer made for strangers, a gift I'd given a few times and received so many, every day, since I was six. Rebecca Solnit on the Solace of Books. Goodness. <clears throat> Beloved, I miss you so dreadfully, not in a desperate or melancholy way, because I know we shall soon be with each other again, but I feel as though such a loss and just can't get into my head that you're not around me anymore. This morning, half awake, I put a hand out to feel for you and then remembered you weren't there. So I got up very quickly to escape the emptiness and worked all day. Still, I couldn't take it that you weren't here. Kept half turning around to see what you were doing or say something to you. You're with me as security and stimulation. Your happiness and vitality are still here, everywhere. I love you as if bewitched, yet at the same time with profound calm. And I'm not afraid of anything life has in store for us. Waiting is a sheer pleasure when it's for you. And the calm awareness that all I have to do is add together a number of days and we'll see each other again. But perhaps it's good to have a bit of distance between us. I now know that I couldn't possibly be more attached to you in a harmonious and happy way that can only grow stronger and more tender. Thank you for the letter, which felt like a happy hug. You have never given me anything but warmth, love, and good cheer. I long to read more in the book of you. I long for you in every way. I'm more alone with all these people around me than when I am wandering around on my own, thinking of you. I've got to become free myself, and I'm free in my painting. I'm so unused to being happy that I haven't really come to terms with what it involves. Suddenly, my arms are helped full of new opportunities, new harmony, new expectations. I feel like a garden that's finally been watered, so my flowers can bloom. Letter from Tove Jansen to Beloved. Beloved. <coughs> 
When someone writes a letter to a very good friend, or even more, to his beloved, he puts on his best attire as well as he may. For in the quiet of the letter, on the tranquil blue paper, he can express his truest feelings. The tongue and the spoken word have become so soiled by their everyday use, they cannot speak out loud for the beauty which the pen can quietly write. Only in my dreams can I gaze on the meadows of their mauve forget-me-nots and black bogles, and the precipices with their scattered tree stumps and branches, and flocks of grouse under stunted dwarf pines. All that is your realm in which you are queen. And we who live in the plains can only look fondly up at the heights in envy or admiration. Yet I know the paths which lead up there, the less frequented paths too, and somewhere far above, amidst the clouds and windows, I shall be waiting for you, my hands outstretched and greeting, cold as ice, yet warm with life and its love, and woe betide anyone else who crosses my path, whistling Wagner. I'll soon strike his note off his shoulders, but now, out of my best attire, which looks a bit like a tourist dress, and into everyday clothes. For the postman waits. It is no pose of deceit if lovers' souls shall show up better than their letters to each in the real life. Nor is it the love false in his love letters. He is not making himself out better than he is. He is becoming better. He is truly himself in such moments, the greatest moments life can bestow on us. All yours. Alan Berg to Helen Nowowski. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Don't expect me to be sane anymore. Don't let's be sensible. It was a marriage at Lucene's? You can't dispute it. I came away with pieces of you sticking to me. I am walking about, swimming in an ocean of blood, your Andalusian blood, distilled and poisonous. I saw your mistress of your home, a moor with a heavy face. Whoa! Okay. Uh, no offense, but I'm going to skip the rest of that one. That goes places that I don't want to talk about today. Again, if you're the one who submitted that, please don't take any offense, but I am going to cut it there because they use a lot of old-school racial terminology in the next paragraph alone, and then it seemed to keep going. So, I, I'm just going to skip it. <laughs> okay, we've got one last love letter list, and then we can go ahead and we can do the quick quotes. All right. <clears throat> <laughs> For everybody listening, wondering why I hit the brake so hard there, more... You may have heard in your English class that more was a term for black people, but it was never a flattering one. So, like, historically speaking, if someone's whipping out that terminology, eh, it might be brake-tappy time. Uh, just saying. Okay. <clears throat> you asked me to give you a little something. Well, here it is. 
I'm giving you half of my heart. I want to give it to you today, even though I'm spacey, a little bit more sore in all the good places that I still have absolutely no saliva, because it's what I want, I feel, and I know. It's real. I also know that tonight I will be hard for you, that there will be harder times to come for both of us, but right now, I just want you to know that the last night was totally off the charts, incredible for me, in the most surprising and profound ways. Even as I write this, I can feel my heart, the other half, twinge and my skin tingle, those frisions again. And when I think about how strange, wonderfully comfortable I felt with you, so close, so calm, just lying there with the pre-dawn delirium softly touching our bodies, entangled, I want to use the word intimacy even though I know it's not professionals will say, because it can't be, because it's not a real relationship. All I know is that being with you is amazing. You're amazing. Really. Oh, and as for the other half of my heart, I'm going to hang on to it and try and keep it in a safe place for a while. Maybe you'll let me know someday, if you want it. And maybe someday I'll give it to you. From Other People's Love Letters, edited by Ben... Ah! Bill Shapiro. Oh, what a plot twist that would be right before quick quotes, right? We found out that's how Ben Shapiro got his fucking start. I'm sorry, when did you start doing what? Editing other people's love letters? How the fuck did I end up doing what I'm doing now? <laughs> one day, one day he gets done editing the final love letter. He's like, that's just it. I'm going to have to tell a college kid how much smarter I am than him. Oh. He just never went back. <laughs> All right, guys, I could use a link for the tips if anybody does want to go ahead. Throw a little money in the jar. Know that I appreciate you. A couple people sent money in in between over the course of the week. I appreciate you guys very much. I really do. Just trying to put on a show. Tonight is uh, much more rambly than normal. Um, I'm just going to level with you before as we get these quick quotes up and I wait for them to appear with my eyes closed. <sighs> so I can't even remember if it's been two or three weeks since I said, I don't want to lose my temper no more, and that's what I'm going to try and do for the rest of the year. But I know that I've either done it for two or three weeks, however long it's been, <laughs> but I would also know that's just not a great sign. Like, if you're counting the time and also you don't know how long it's been... Oof. Oof. Both of those at the same time. That means it's not easy. But, on the other hand, I think that's really good for me to know. I think it's really good for me to remember every single fucking day. This is just not easy. It's just not easy for anybody. And every time somebody sends me a nice message, or I think somebody's letting me a little bit off the hook, all I can think is, Oh, thank Christ for you. 
Oh, thank Christ for you. Really. Just that little bit of relief, that solidarity. You know, I'm white, maybe you've noticed, and, and, and I'm not particularly uh, jumping up and down talking about the conversations about race that are happening right now in America. But even I, w with all that being true, have felt incredible solidarity with, with people who have said that they're standing with the people of America and that they feel for us in, in various countries. Even I have felt it. And the reason why I'm underscoring that that I'm, I'm, I'm white and I'm not, you know, forefront on this, on this battleground uh, is because that's just the power of solidarity, right? That's just the power of good intention. If you really broadcast uh, good intention right now in 2020, people know how hard that is and are so much more willing to forgive stumbles and mistakes if they really believe that your intent is good, if they really believe that you're trying to bolster or encourage or show any kind of compassion, they're pretty much willing to give uh, any, any series of faux pas a total sweep away, as far as I can tell. People are that hungry for those things. And if you're that hungry for them too, well, this is my encouragement to give it, because uh, boy... It has not been an easy week for me personally. It really hasn't. Uh, there's nothing to say about it besides that. It's been a lot of extra stress. It's been constant. I couldn't get away from it. And I know you know how that feels. I know you've had periods of it in your life. And if it wasn't for you guys, uh, if it wasn't for the ladies of the night, uh, if it wasn't for the regularity of, of, of what I'm doing and, and, and putting it together for you, I would have been lost. So that solidarity, uh, that encouragement, that kindness, um, it kept me from uh, getting anywhere close to losing my temper. It's been a long, long, hard week for me. I'm so grateful to be putting it to bed with you guys. And all I can say is uh, deeply appreciative that... Um, all I can say, I really need to drop that from my lexicon. Deeply appreciative for that solidarity, that support, that encouragement, trying to get the way that I know how, making the content, speaking to what's going on, speaking to my feelings, not, not taking things personally, criticism is when it comes in, really trying, because I've got my flaws. You know that if you've been listening this far. Uh, just really trying, and I know that you are too, so... There it is. A little bit of, little bit of connection back and forth. Okay. <clears throat> quick quotes. We don't have a lot of them because you girls need to come out to the next show and give me more quick quotes. Here we go. <clears throat> Kitten, get back in here or your punishment will be much worse. Groundbreaking. Every moment makes you closer to who you're meant to be. So heart keep feeling, because that means you're going in the right direction. That ponytail is my lever for your mouth. Isn't it, baby girl? Isn't it? Stop and relax. 
Stop for a minute. Relax. You're doing well. Hey, it's okay, baby girl. I'm here. Such a good girl soul. You look stressed, sweetie. Mm, let daddy help you feel better. Come here, Lola. Let daddy show you what you've been missing. You did great this week, baby girl. Good fucking girl. Daddy loves how hard you come for him. Mm. All right, guys. Thank you very much for the quick quotes. Coming out, supporting the show, saying and giving me your requests. It really does mean the world. We do have, it looks like, a piece of silly smut. I know that everybody enjoys these. We appreciate the ladies who go and find and fish them out for us. So without any further ado beyond this sip of water. Eileen calls the room where she works the fluorescent nunnery. It's going to be a good story. All day, the breath of machines stirs her hair. She suspects she is dying fast in the climate. The skin on her breasts and inner thighs has grown tough. Her hair is dry and won't reflect sunlight. She supervises 30 women whom enter data from endless reams into their computers. Eileen sees the hieroglyphic figures everywhere. Data streams out of wine bottles, turns up in her food, and pump out of her husband's cock. At her desk, Eileen can make herself come in 12 seconds. She can make her cut muscles pulse in and out like a butterfly's wings until her vulva clenches in four creamy spasms. When she isn't masturbating, Eileen watches the employees. A new typist has caught her attention. She gazes at the ream with mystic concentration as if it was data, was a formula for ecstasy. Eileen doesn't like this woman. She doesn't respond to Eileen's progressive attitude. She wears smocks that whoosh around her, raising dust. Except for her speeding fingers, she moves with an unslow serenity. Eileen prefers the girls who make crass jokes in the restroom, sneak soda cans under their desks, and fake car trouble so they can stay home an extra hour in the morning to fuck their boyfriends. It's Lori, isn't it? The girl stands before the bathroom mirror, clenching her teeth as she adjusts something under her schmock. Eileen washes her hands rapidly. Lily, the name was given to me. (laughs) 
Of course it was given to you, idiot, thought Eileen. <laughs> Suddenly, the girl lifts her smock over her head. Eileen stares. She feels an unexpected twinge between her legs. The girl is wearing a cruelly made, elaborate corset. Lay so tight that her waist disappears between her bulging hip bones and bosom. The fabric resembles black leather, only it is much less yielding. The top covers the girl's press, slicing into the flesh. But holes have been cut out to expose the nipples. This had to have been written by a 16-year-old boy. This had to have been. This had to have been. <laughs> the laces, which cross in the front and tie in the back, obviously restrict breathing. The material creaks as the girl reaches back to loosen its fastening. Could you help me? Lily whispers. I've got to take this off. Eileen reminds herself that this is hip. She's seen porno mags. She knows about S&M. But she doesn't move. The girl finally releases herself and lets the contraption fall. She winces, rubbing the network of red lines across her torso. Marks from a series of pointed studs inside the corset. Pepper her waist? That's barbaric. Eileen breathes. Oh no. Lily protests. It's beautiful. Why the hell would you wear something like that? It was given to me. Eileen is getting angry. That's the sickest thing I've ever seen in my life, she exclaims. She forgot that she was cool and open-minded. The girl smiles. Are you fucking kidding me? Why don't you try it on? She suggests. <laughs> I won't lace it all the way. They never make you do it. The first time. Eileen wants to scream, but she reminds herself that she is tolerant. She's also the practical supervisor. This girl never misses a day, arrives five minutes early each morning, and does all the work of two ordinary typists, all while wearing a garment straight out of a torture chamber. Eileen recalls the expression on the girl's face as she enters the mounds of data. She moistens a paper towel in cold water and presses it to her forehead. Back to work, says the girl cheerfully. She hoists the corset off the floor and refastens it. While the girl envelops herself in her blue schmock, Eileen stumbles into the stall. She wants to vomit, but between her legs, she is thoroughly wet. Eileen now despises Lily. With the other employees, Eileen is friendlier than ever, using their slang and chatting with them about their sex lives. The girls laugh at Eileen's joke, and then they mock her behind her back. When Eileen accidentally glances at Lily, 
She sees the corset and hears Lily sigh, knowing the girl is in pain. One morning, Eileen's phone rings and all the women look up. She motions for them to go on with their work, but they keep staring. Eileen decides to entertain her audience. She poses on her desk and picks up the receiver. Hello, she says smokily. The women giggle. I'd like to speak to Lily, says the voice. It's a man's voice, smooth as a plum. Lily, Eileen recoils. Employees can't receive calls here, she says coldly. Talk to Lily on your own time. It is essential that I speak to her. The voice gives Eileen no alternative. Lily has already risen from her desk. When the girl takes the phone, Eileen snatches her away. The girls listen for a moment, then puts the receiver down. I have to go. She says, her tone is conspiratorial, as if Eileen should understand why Lily has to depart at the summit of a phone call with no prior notice in the middle of the morning. And Eileen won't let her leave. I'm sorry, says Lily, walking towards the door. The other women stare. The company has given Lily an unprecedented raise. She will return tomorrow five minutes early, and she will continue to do so, except when a voice on the telephone orders her to do otherwise. Eileen is furious. She sits at her desk and tries to look over some documents, but she can't read. With shaking hands, she yanks a pack of cigarettes from a person, stalks out the room. She lights one up in the hallway and then enters the restroom. Sitting on the floor, propped up against the wall of one of the sinks, is the corset. The sinks have now ultra-modern facets. Water flows without the help of knobs or handles whenever hands are extended for washing. Beneath these water-saving miracles lies the corset, a medieval nightmare. Eileen reaches out to touch it. The material is untextured and cool, but Eileen pulls her hand away as if burned. She drops the cigarette in the sink and lifts the corset with her fingertips. It is lighter than it appears, but heavy enough so that it eventually would become a burden. She strokes the studs lining the garment, then pulls the corset experimentally around her waist, noting the sharpness of the metal teeth. A strap dangles from behind, and apparently this fits beneath the legs and fastens in the front. Repelled, Eileen realizes that her crotch is damp again. She should take this thing to the incinerator, and better yet, she should take it to the cops. Instead, she finds herself laying the garment down and undressing. Standing nude, she laces the front and pulls the straps up her legs, buckling it above her crotch. She can then breathe comfortably, and the stud's pointed tips barely sting. She pulls the lace tighter and rebuckles the crotch strap so that it really digs into her, undulating her hips. She groans at the combined sensation, the edges of the corset biting into her flesh, the studs prickling her waist, the straps abrading her pussy. With her palms, she rubs her exposed nipples. She gasps at the strap and the leg, and it jerks, until down it comes so intensely that she strokes her thighs. 
Eileen wears the corset back to her desk, certain that someone will see the black garment through her ivory blouse. She sits down, but she can't work. The pain has worsened. The suds pierce her skin, and the stiff garment won't let her breathe. She panics. She has to remove it. I can't stand it. Oh, God, I can't stand it. Then she thinks of Lily with her beatific expression. She forces her body to accept the pain, closes her eyes, she gives into it, becomes it. She focuses on the agony of the strap cutting into her pussy. Soon, she is excited again. She tells the typist that she's leaving early. Indifferent, they type. Eileen leaves without her jacket or her purse. She can't imagine she would need them. In the streets, she walks stiffly, but with an undeniable urgency. Walking in the corset brings her a new level of pain and arousal. Soon, she has to stop. The agony is unbearable. Leaning against a parking meter, she breathes deeply. But the studs are fiery points against her ribcage. Her entire torso is a blister and raw. The strap between her legs feels excruciating. A car pulls up at the meter. Someone gets out and lifts her putting her into the car. Inside, hands remove her clothing and work at the corset. <laughs> at each lace unfastening, Eileen takes a drink of air. She has never felt anything as sweet as the removal of the garment. You fastened it too tight. Her rescuer chides her. Oh, wait. There's no drop. All right. The first time, you should lace it no more tightly than a life preserver. The car's interior is large, lush, and dark. Tinted windows guard her from the outside world, and another window separates the back seat from the front. Her savior strokes ointment on her flesh. His fingers, see, God damn it, tell her that although he is now ministering to her pain, he can also inflict it. His face is scarred and pitted. He has earned his privileges. His touch arouses her. He leans in against the seat and is preparing to ride to orgasm when he stops. From now on, he says, you won't take pleasure before I do. Whenever I want you, wherever you are, you will come to me. What if I don't? Eileen starts to ask, but that look on his face makes her instead, what if I can't? If you disobey me, I'll find you and weld you into the corset. No instrument can cut through that material. It can't even be burned. It's indestructible. Can you imagine how it would be feel to be stuck in the corset? Yes, Eileen whispers. You can't go back. Now that you've put on one of my corsets, you want to wear it, don't you? She can only answer yes. You'll continue your life the way it's always been, with two exceptions. First, you will interrupt any activity when I summon you. Second, you will allow no one but me to touch you. His face is triangular with silver eyes, a wolf's face, a face that demands worship. Eileen bows her head. He unzips his leather trousers and his cock leaps out, 
radiating heat. She sucks lightly on the tip, grasping her hair. He directs her to move faster, and she takes the whole shaft into her mouth, using her muscles to massage his cock to the beat of its pulse. <laughs> She tastes the ripe flavor of groin sweat. When she feels him swell suddenly, she produces a steady pressure with her hips, tongue, and throat. She accepts the explosion, all salt and cream. Do you remember what I said? He asks. I'll please you only when I want to. The cunt walls clench like a fist. Rebelliously, she tries to touch herself, but he takes her hand away. This time, I'll reward you, he says. He seizes her knees and spreads them and leans down to cleave her lips with his tongue. Removing his tongue from her steaming hole, he spears her clit with it. Then she comes in seconds. There's a war against this kind of warship. He says, when they are finished, the corset won't just transform you. It will defend you. Whenever you wear it, you're free to surrender yourself to me. No one can prevent you. I'm giving you a rare opportunity. He eases the corset onto her and laces it around her new torso so that it studs barely caress her wounds. <laughs> Full Metal Corset by Anne Torney. Uh, I don't think we can top that. <laughs> I don't think we can top that. I don't think we can top that. I don't think we can move into serious smut and top that. That was incredible. Every five fucking paragraphs, it was a different story. Do ladies want their clits speared? <laughs> 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 should should I go into the kitchen and get one of those bamboo skewers? <laughs> all right, all right. Oh God. Oh no, no. You shouldn't. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Guys, I apologize. I'm going to end the show a little bit early on a little bit low energy. Um, just know that I appreciate you all very much. Everybody who came out, everybody who contributed, everybody who said something. I'm hoping to leave you all with a laugh. Uh... <laughs> I do appreciate each and every last one of you very, very much. Come on out to the next show, next Friday, 10 Eastern. I very much want to see you there. Come. We had a, a lot of love letters this time. I'd love to get some poetry next time. Uh, the whole thing. We've got the smut. Uh, I promise we'll get through a little bit more. You know what it is uh, with, with, with everything going on. 
I am taking care of myself. Please don't be too worried about me. I promise I'm not putting on a brave face. But I'm also monitoring my own energy. I'm taking care of myself. And me and Mrs. Kitty just need to snuggle real good for a while. So thank you to everybody who came out. I do hope to see you next week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, I appreciate you all very much.